Tired of blogs? <laughs> Me too. Moby Lives Radio starts now. Intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, aka the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's the 30th of November, 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson, and on today's show, we'll be talking to book designer Deb Wood. She's the design director of one of America's hippest art book publishing houses, the Princeton Architectural Press. We'll also be talking to Seattle reporter Tim Apollo about the literary evidence that George Bush is the Antichrist. But first, here's some news from the book world. In Great Britain, the Office of Fair Trading is about to issue its decision on whether the country's biggest chain bookstore, Waterstones, will be allowed to take over one of the country's other big chain bookstores, Otakers, or whether it's going to consign the decision to the Competition Commission for further review. As Alice O'Keefe reports in the Observer newspaper, if the deal gets the go-ahead, Waterstone's parent company, HMV, will then control about a quarter of the British book trade and as much as 50% of the special sales category. O'Keefe reports numerous leading publishers and authors Uh, in addition to the Royal Society of Authors and the Publishers Association, have been making a last-ditch effort to head off the deal out of fear it's going to concentrate too much power and influence over the book industry into the hands of one company. Uh, Many even cite that as Waterstones has centralized buying for its stores, it's going to place too much power simply into the hands of one man, that buyer, Scott Pack. The company, meanwhile, issued a statement playing down such fears, saying Waterstones is not a one-size-fits-all retailer. Each of our bookshops has its own unique range profile, and each branch also has its own space at the front of the store to promote a choice of books picked by that branch. Pack, meanwhile, did not respond to requests for comment. Harper's Magazine, one of the few remaining mass-market magazines in America to continue publishing fiction, and to continue its in-depth book review section, has announced a new editor-in-chief to replace longtime head Lewis Lapham when he steps down in April. 38-year-old Roger Hodge, the magazine's deputy editor, is going to step up, but he says that even though the competition, such as The New Yorker, is reviewing fewer books, and The Atlantic, which has stopped running fiction regularly, he has no plans to change things at Harper's. Quote, it will be the same magazine, he told the New York Times. We're not going to tear up a good format that's working. I don't have so much vanity that I think I have to walk in and put my stamp on it. Elsewhere, the great literary website Nth Position has uncovered a letter written by author C.S. Lewis in which he calls the idea of a movie of his classic Narnia books, quote, blasphemy, buffoonery, or nightmare. End quote. In a letter to a BBC producer written in 1959, Lewis said he was, quote, absolutely opposed to a TV version, too. Uh, a cartoon version, he said, might be, quote, another matter, but not if it was done by Walt Disney, 
whose work Lewis said suffered from, quote, vulgarity. Meanwhile, Disney's version of the late author, author's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is due out for Christmas. In a hail and farewell, children's book author Stan Berenstain, who, with his wife Jan, created the hugely popular Berenstain Bears series, has died of undisclosed causes in Philadelphia. The couple first developed the series with Theodore Geisel, a.k.a. Dr. Zeus, when the good doctor was head of children's books at Random House. Their first book was The Big Honey Hunt in 1962. They went on to publish over 200 books that, as an obituary on the AP Wire's notes, quote, helped children for 40 years cope with trips to the dentist, babysitters, eating junk food, and cleaning their messy rooms. Stan Berenstain was 82 years old. And finally in the news, there's stiff competition in London as nominees for the annual Bad Sex and Fiction Award from the Literary Review have been announced. According to a report in The Guardian, John Updike is the favorite, although Paul Thoreau is coming up hard on the outside. Other nominees include Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Salman Rushdie, and Marlon Brando uh, for a scene in his posthumously released and maybe written novel, Fantan which Guardian reporter Michelle Pauly calls incomprehensible. Uh, she also cites a scene from Ben Elton's The First Casualty, in which a nurse in thrall cries out such exhortations to her partner as tally-ho. Pauly's favorite is uh, the Thoreau for a scene that features, quote, a demon eel thrashing in his loins, end quote. The Moby Lives candidate is Giles Corin for a long passage that ends with the words, like Zorro. The winner will be announced on December 13th at ceremonies at London's In-N-Out Club. Meanwhile, last year's winner, Tom Wolfe, is still apparently grumbling about having won the award. He says the judges missed the irony in the winning passage from his novel, I Am Charlotte Simmons. And that's the news for the 30th of November 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson. It's November 30th, and on this day in literary history in 1835, the great American writer Samuel Langhorne Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain, was born in Florida, Missouri. His parents soon moved to Hannibal, Missouri, on the Mississippi River, which would later be the imaginative capital for some of Twain's most famous works, especially The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and his masterpiece The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Ernest Hemingway wrote of Huckleberry Finn, quote, all American writing comes from that. There was nothing before. There has been nothing as good since. As a young man, Twain worked many jobs, printer, mining prospector, and his favorite steamboat pilot on the Mississippi River. It was during this time that he picked up the term Mark Twain, a boatman's call that the river was only two fathoms deep, the minimum depth for safe navigation. Twain began his writing life as a reporter, writing humorous pieces for several Western newspapers after his mining forays failed. He wrote wildly successful travel letters for various newspapers that enabled him to travel all over the world and were later collected into best-selling books. Perhaps the most famous celebrity of his time, in later life, Twain could be a ruthless satirist. 
He spoke out vigorously on racism and imperialism and the social cowardice and inertia that perpetuated them. He wrote, quote, the only very marked difference between the average civilized man and the average savage is that the one is gilded and the other is painted. He was known for his irreverence, perhaps the apogee of which was a humorous speech delivered in Paris in 1879, but suppressed by his family and only published in 1943, entitled, quote, Some Thoughts on the Science of Onanism, wherein he concludes, quote, when you feel a revolutionary uprising in your system, get your Vendome column down some other way. Don't jerk it down. In later life, his fortunes declined, particularly after his investment in a typesetting machine, a precursor to the typewriter, which failed miserably, taking with it a large portion of his money. He survived the death of three of his four children and of his beloved wife, Olivia. And though terribly depressed and disgusted with life in the world, he continued to write and could still come back with a good one-liner. When the New York Journal published a premature obituary, Twain famously responded, quote, the reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. But he made his own announcement in 1909, referring to Halley's Comet's appearance at his birth. He wrote, quote, I came in with Halley's Comet in 1835, it is coming again next year, and I expect to go out with it. And so he did. Halley's Comet was visible on April 21st, 1910, and on April 21st, Samuel Clemens died. I'm Valerie Marians, and that's this day in literary history. I know my Tim Apollo, is George Bush the Antichrist? Well, yes, but not in the sense that people think. He, he doesn't have cloven hoof and uh, horns, even though that's the way we depicted him on our cover. Um, but he does, according to a mainstream Methodist preacher in Seattle, correspond precisely to the only passage in the Bible that actually mentions the, uh, the spirit of Antichrist by name. In other words, it's not a character, it's just a spirit that is anti-Christian. Well, the, the cover you're referring to uh, is the Seattle Weekly, where you have written a survey, essentially, of the, the literature on the debate, um, inspired by the, the accusation that the president is, is actually the Antichrist coming from some parts. Let's start, though, by orienting Mobilis listeners, if we can. What's the original source material on the Antichrist? Is it, is it the Bible's book of Revelation, or, or what is it exactly? Actually, the book of Revelation doesn't mention the word Antichrist, but there's a tradition that dates back to the 1840s uh, that connects the mysterious prophecies in the book of Revelation with the beast and all that, uh, particularly the beast of Revelations, with the Antichrist mentioned in First John, which is one of the epistles of the New Testament. And which is not part of the book of Revelation. No. Uh, in fact, if you just read it, it's pretty hard to make heads or tails of, of any of it. It's quite mysterious. But to help uh, Christians um, figure it out according to his lights, a guy named Darby, uh, a, um, a former Anglican minister, put together a highly uh, fanciful interpretation that identifies the beast and uh, the, the Antichrist as identifies the beast as a character called the Antichrist. And this is now hugely popular. It's 
uh, more people bought the popular book about this, Left Behind, uh, than voted for Bush, though a lot of them voted for Bush, too. So the, the, the concept of, of the Antichrist actually kind of started in, in this 1840s book by Darby. Absolutely. The Antichrist, as we know it, has nothing to do with the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, is a, it was invented by a guy named Darby and then popularized in America in 1909 by the Schofield Reference Bible, uh, which was put out by a Kansas City lawyer who helpfully cross-referenced Old and New Testament verses to uh, kind of bring out the figure in the carpet, uh, you know. To, mm-hmm. But it's really invented. I mean, it's really just as crazy as as Charles Manson's interpretation of the Beatles' White Album. Mm-hmm. But almost certainly the president believes it, and 60 million Americans bought this book. Well, for 60 million Americans bought the... The, the Left Behind book. Okay. Books. Um, I think, actually, it's even more than that now. Uh, well, that was back when, but now there's yeah. a movie. <laughs> yeah, and he keeps pumping them out. But, um, so so the Left Behind series is uh, is actually the, the, the story of the Antichrist. Uh, yes, in fact, in that, the Antichrist is Nikolai Carpathia, um, uh, who's elected as uh, People Magazine's sexiest man of the year, which, as a former People Magazine contributor, I find quite plausible. Mm-hmm. If there were an Antichrist, he <laughs> would be. They go with the heat. Well, you, you may not be writing for people anymore now. <laughs> there you go. Um, well, for the for the average reader today who who doesn't want to read the uh, however many books it is in the Left Behind series for the for the fictionalization of the uh, Antichrist. What is a, is it is the definitive book on the subject? Is there one that, that people can read for for a good overview of of what the Antichrist is and, and what it signifies? Well, for the uh, practical real wor- world effects of uh, Bush's anti-Christian efforts, you want to read Esther Kaplan's With God on Their Side, How Christian Fundamentalists Trampled Science, Policy, and Democracy in George W. Bush's White House. But for the Antichrist itself, as a tradition, the best book is Bruce Bauer's Stealing Jesus, How Fundamentalism Betrays Christianity, which is a detailed but very clear uh, history of the evolution of this concept of the Antichrist and how it became uh, a chart-topping uh, popular entertainment. Now, now, that one is not from the 1840s, I take it. No, that's 1997. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, in your Seattle Weekly article, you you mention another book um, where it seems that some of the, the stories, uh, the accusations that the president is the actual Antichrist may have originated, uh, perhaps unfairly so. I'm talking about your mention of Robert Wright's book, non-zero, the logic of human destiny. Well, actually, that's, I, 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 he doesn't really address uh, Bush directly. Um, he happened to have written an uh, editorial in the New York Times where he uh, sarcastically uh, or sardonically said that uh, he supported John Kerry with reservations because at least he wasn't the Antichrist, which implies that Bush was. But he just meant metaphorically that, that Bush uh, is a very dangerous person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he does come from a Southern Baptist uh, origin, and his books about Darwin, the moral animal, and uh, the the uh, the more recent um, uh, book uh, Non-Zero uh, try to apply science to what are really uh, Christian ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, he he finds a, a a basis for original sin in uh, Darwin's account of. Uh, of how our inner beast 
the devil under form of baboon, as Darwin called it, uh, holds sway over our, our better natures. Mm-hmm. And in non-zero, he, he uh, really uh, gives what I call the real intelligent design movement. Um, he says that there may be, there, game theory and other, other aspects of science point tantalizingly towards the possibility that things aren't just random. Evolution, the evolution of the universe ha- is subtly biased in favor of the evolution of reason and morality and virtue. Well, it seems that uh, a few people did run with the, the notion, uh, whether they were blaming right for it or not, that Bush was the Antichrist. You mentioned, uh, for example, simply typing uh, George W. Bush and Antichrist into a Google search yields uh, not only just thousands of, of uh, sites discussing this, but the, the idea that some people are taking it seriously. Oh, sure. I've gotten lots of mail from people who assure me that it fits into a grand pattern. There are many conspiracy theories out there. That's what got me interested in it in the first place. See, at first, people started comparing Bush to Hitler, but mm-hmm. as his uh, deeds became uglier and scarier, Hitler didn't, wouldn't do anymore, so they reached for a more, more ultimate metaphor, and in, in our culture, that's the Antichrist. <laughs> What's worse than Hitler? Well, now we know. Well, the, the, the Seattle Times article included a really interesting uh, timeline of the, the, the concept of the Antichrist through the ages, including some more recent uh, uh, books about the subject. Uh, there, there was one note of a 1982 book by Mary Stuart Ralph, I believe it is pronounced, who apparently had as Antichrist nominees uh, Henry Kissinger, Anwar Sadat, Pope John Paul II, and King Juan Carlos of Spain. She narrowed it down to Sadat, but just before her book was officially published, apparently he was assassinated. Before that, there was Hal Lindsey, who wrote the, um, the late great planet Earth. Right. Uh, mega bestseller in the 70s and, and early 80s, and uh, he believed what it was Khomeini, uh, Sadat, and, and Arafat were his candidates. Right. It's Every generation uh, elects its own antichrist. The idea of it goes back to the Emperor Nero, who he, he won the enmity of Christians because he would tie them to stakes and put on animal skins and then just destroy their genitals and set them on fire. And this this, this didn't play well in the Christian community. So he's the beast in Revelation, or he's the original uh, idea for it, because he proclaimed himself as a god, and mm-hmm. this irritated the Christians too. So that was that was the, the actual origin of the idea of an antichrist that was uh, outside of the Bible, yeah. it sounds like. Well, no, it was in the Bible. It was in, uh, it's just that, that um, the, the Christians put it in the Bible uh, because it was their metaphor for the, a terrible leader who arrogates the power of God. Um, some people think that Bush is, in a sense, ironically enough, the Nero of our time. Well, that's when they don't think he's the Hitler. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's whatever metaphor is appropriate. I see. Well, so um, the interesting part, I think, being that it is not in the Bible in the book of Revelations. No, and indeed uh, the book of Revelations only barely made it into the Bible. They, yeah. they almost kept it out, and the only way the authorities permitted it in was uh, un- uh, under the, the uh, condition that it should never be used the way it's being used now by most people, uh, including Bush. It's, it should be, the idea of the Antichrist uh, ought to be uh, the, the idea of our inner evil nature, our, our uh, violence and the, the, uh, the uh, devil under form of baboon. Uh, 
and it's you don't have to look far to find the Antichrist. It's in everyone's hearts. Well, uh, Tim Apollo, will you come back and report on future developments in this important story for Mobiles Radio? Absolutely. I'm, I'm your man on the Antichrist beat. Well, uh, Tim, former Amazon.com bestsellers editor, author, and uh, Seattle Weekly writer, and now Moby Lives Radio Antichrist correspondent. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Today to Deb Wood, the design director of Princeton Architectural Press. Princeton Architectural Press has been around for about 25 years, and it's in no way affiliated with Princeton University, but it's a great architecture and design publishing house located in New York City. Deb, tell me, uh, what led you to design books? Um, well, in, in college, I had a job at a local bookstore called Waterstones, um, and in that in that store, I managed the section for the design and, and architecture section. Um, in what I was when I was shelving these books, um, a lot of my favorites, you know, had the Princeton logo at the bottom, and I decided that maybe someday I would come and to New York and try to find work. And I think when I was coming here to to look for a job, I just decided to try my hand at, you know, see what they had to offer. Maybe I could do some freelance work or whatever. And I was really lucky um, to come across the opportunity that they were actually looking to fill a position here. Um, so I really, I, I don't know that I consciously decided that at some point I wanted to design books. It was more of, um, I wanted to be in a place that created these things that were so interesting to me on so many levels and that had this diversity. Um, you know, across the board. I mean, they're doing, they were doing a lot of things. They were doing design and architecture, but also, you know, pop culture and theory. And, and even, you know, today we, we just were doing photography and art. So it's really like the list just keeps going. Um, so I wanted to, I, I think I just, I was more interested in like the subjects than really, I think, becoming a book designer. Hmm. Yeah, the, the catalog is incredibly diverse. Um, some of my favorite Princeton architectural books are Bent Ply, The Art of Plywood Furniture, mm -hmm. um, and Reinventing the Wheel, which is the book about Volvels yeah, or Information okay. Wheels, which is a really fascinating book. Um, so I wanted to ask you, Deb, for books like those, did you design both the interiors as well as the covers? Um, no, actually, um, well, for Bent Ply, that was um, a book that was designed also by the author, um, Young No. He designed the interior, and then when it came for us to sort of conceptualize the package, you know, everyone was like, wow, wouldn't it be great if we could make this out of, out of actual plywood? I mean, can, can that happen? And so for, for me, um, on that book, my job was mostly, you know, being the design director, trying to figure out ways that we could make the, the package cohesive as a whole. Um, so for me... Um, actually, and it's great when you can work with people like like Young. He was um, really willing to, to work together, and he was he was he was excited by I think the process of the collaboration. So for me, that was great because you know I I'm interpreting um, things like from our ma marketing and sales perspective, like you know this package has to be really 
great and it has to, you know, have a great cover and everything. So it's easier sometimes, I think, for me to step in and, and maybe just show what I'm talking about than maybe talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that case, um, I was fortunate to get to work on that cover, um, even though I didn't work on the interior. I think on a book like that, I'm really kind of overseeing, like, the consistency of things and maybe making suggestions here and there how, like, pages can be different or how they can, you know, uh, unite, uh, a, a, you know, train of thought or whatever. Um, so for Bent Ply, that's how that worked. And then Reinventing the Wheel is a great book. That's um, That was also designed out of house um, by Winterhouse Studios. And this is another part of my job that is really interesting because I'm I'm able to work with other designers as well, you know, not just designing my own books. Um, you know, it helps it helps me see other things in other ways, which mm-hmm. I think is really it's really important so that you're not always doing the same thing. It kind of keeps me fresh and on my toes mm-hmm. um, and thinking as clear as I can. Do you have a large staff? Um, there are two other designers besides myself, um, and aside from that, there's also. I think we're up to maybe maybe 20 people now. Um, we're, we're a pretty small publishing house. And how many books do you put out a year? Um, last year we put out 65 books a year. That's a lot. Yeah. For a small house like that. It's a lot. <laughs> so how long does the typical design process for a, a, a maybe not so complicated Princeton Architectural Press book take? Um, usually I would say um, probably about three to four months. That's really fast. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's that's just the design end of it, like design and production. Um, I think, like, editorially, I think it's like a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but it depends. I mean, it depends on, you know, are we talking about, like, a text-heavy book or if we're talking about, you know, a photography book. I think it depends on the level of information and how many different types of information, you, have, you know, you have to work with. Mm-hmm. Um Sometimes they're really fast. Uh, sometimes the schedules are, are kind of compressed, and um, that's always fun. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a particular book that you could give me an example of that's, that has a really fast schedule like that? Um, I'm trying to think. I, um, we did just sort of we did just work on a really uh, a really quick turnaround for this book, um, and it I think it was like I, I laid it out in maybe like a week. It was like a 336 page book and then it it went like to the author to the editors everyone looks at it and then pretty much like two weeks later it's going to press so that for me is like that's a fast that's a really fast schedule and that's being done because of some current events or it's just a a hot book that came in that needed to get out of the house fast yeah i mean you know well also we try to we try to keep a balance of you know of books basically you know we don't want to have you know, whatever, 10 books going to the printer at once, mm-hmm. because obviously then we're going to probably have a month where no books go to the printer, and that's mm-hmm. not good for us financially. So I think um, probably, I think this one in particular was maybe just just to kind of keep everything like even and level um, in that department. So we're trying to just get a book to the printer <laughs> for that month. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Oh, good to know. Um, when you talk about designing these books that have all these various uh, graphic elements to them, do you feel that there's special attention you have to pay to designing that kind of book, uh, that perhaps a designer who's doing straight text or fiction 
might not have to? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think I think that, um, I mean, book design is really interesting because I think I think any designer could design a book. It's it's you would maybe do have to do it a few times to get the hang of it or get the get the idea of it. But I think that um, you know, really a really successful design is someone who is really conscious of the material and and what it what its potential could be. And I think or or who it can who who the um you know, the broader audience that it can reach, you know, if it's being, um, you know, being um, presented in, in an interesting way. I mean, I think that it's it's pretty easy to just make a straightforward book and just, you know, put it out there and, you know, and it's perfectly fine and it's non-offensive or, you know, whatever. But I think that um, there's, so, there's so many options. I think you never underestimate, like, what the material is that you're given is just can be done in only one way or can be shown in only one way. I think it's it's always like when, when things come on my desk, it's like, all right, let's think about, you know, just the best way possible to show this or, you know, how many different ways can we think of this and, and just kind of like really like trying to push the envelope a little bit. And I think I think for us, that's maybe what separates us from, from some other bigger houses is that, you know, it's not really a factory here. We're, we really are thinking about every every book in its own unique way and I think that that's um, and it's something we're trying to hold on to because it's really important to us um, so it's interesting you should say that because I definitely feel when I walk into a big bookstore there are certainly trends in maybe the colors that are used in covers or a particular way that a book looks maybe with I know legs was something a few years back there were legs on every book for <laughs> some reason yeah, um, that's true. I'm sure that you actively avoid doing those things at Princeton Architectural Press but could you maybe explain to me from a design point of view why those kind of trends or common covers happen hmm, I, that's really interesting I I know exactly what you're saying and I think that I think as much as we want to avoid it, I think that there is sometimes just this really um, unspoken common knowledge or common aesthetic that people are are contributing to or that are that that are actually like um, responding to. So I I don't know I don't really know how that happens. I think um, you know trends trends happen. I, I I'm personally I mean I'm not really the one to talk about how they how they work out, but I think that. Um, I think it's also probably got something to do with marketing and sales. I know a lot of times, you know, I'll be um, presenting a book or a book cover and, and get comments like, well, you know, maybe you should make it more like this because, you know, you know, citing another book that's really successful on the market because, because that's really selling really well. And, you know, <laughs> that's maybe why that happens is maybe because a lot of designers are being led by those groups to kind of design for a certain a certain audience or a certain level of of marketability, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, well, maybe that's what's happening. I'm not sure. Well, that leads me to my next question, which is I think that's an inevitable struggle that happens in any publishing house. Um, you know, everybody has their kind of hand in what they want a book to look like. You've probably got authors saying they want something on their cover, and you've got your sales rep who wants one thing because they've seen, you know, Dan Brown's got the Mona Lisa on the cover, right. so we should too. Right. Um, you know, how do you decide when to compromise and when to fight for your vision? Hmm. 
That's a tough one um, because I mean I think I think more and more. I mean I do I do realize the pressures to make a book um, at a level you know that it's marketing that we can we can market it to a larger audience. I I have a hard time understanding like who those who th- who that audience is and why they buy certain books. I think that um, a lot of times. You know, I'm I'm being kind of forced into one direction that I don't really feel I don't feel comfortable kind of designing a book for. So um, I guess I'm probably I'm probably going to fight for every single cover that comes on my desk if I believe in it. I mean, it's worth it to me. It's it's worth it because I mean, if you can at least you know aim to get something through that's like you know a hundred percent. If you can aim like two hundred, you might get you know, you might get your, like, 150%. I, I don't know. It's kind of it, it's kind of tricky. I mean, I don't think that... I think that everybody's compromising, probably, on some level. Every department is compromising. Editorially, you know, um, I'm sure, you know, sales is compromising, design is compromising. So, in a way, it's like, you know, I don't... I try not to take it personally, um, but a lot of times it does feel like I get really close to these things, and I... You know, I I get really close to the subject matter, and I really, I really want to see it be something special or be something more than than it seems to be. You know, mm-hmm. um, so I think you know that's probably. I mean, I, I talk to a lot of my friends who are in, in design and in publishing, um, and they have a lot of the same the same issues. I mean, I think it's just a natural. It's probably a natural um, part of the publishing industry, I guess, is, uh, you know, those are going to be the camps that, that fight, fight against each other all the time, probably. Mm. Well, what books on the market right now, besides your own, do you consider to have successful design? Um, you know, I've, I've seen, I've seen some really great design lately. I mean, I, it, book design, books are getting just so much more, um, th- more, more thoughtful and conceptual, I think, um, lately. I think a lot of people are starting to, to think about it or even, like, value it more than, than I've ever seen it. Um, as far as specific uh, places, I mean, I Melville House is really kicking it in. <laughs> um, I, I've always liked what you guys do. You guys have a great, a great overall aesthetic, and I think that, I hear that from a lot of people, too. I mean, I think that that's, I think you can definitely see that there's a value there um, placed on design. Um, you know, some other places, I'm, I'm very, we have, uh, we have some books from, from Hyphen Press um, that we distribute, and I'm always kind of cooing over his uh, books. That's Robin Kinross. He does a lot of architecture. Um, well, not really architecture. I guess he's doing more design books, um, typography books, um, pretty specialized subject matter but I think the design is always just so so beautiful um, and straightforward I think design doesn't have to be this flashy thing for me to want to put up a book it just has to really convey to me like you know an interesting idea um, so I think yeah I, it's hard for me to say I've seen so many good things lately but now I'm now that you ask it's like oh, I love everything I guess <laughs> I can't really uh can't really specify. Are there any, I mean, if, if say someone was tying you down and, and made you tell them maybe one of the, a mainstream 
book that you thought did a good job getting its point across to the reader? Was there anything that mainstream that would pique your interest or make you say that that is a successful? Hmm. Um, boy, all right, I'm being tied down. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I'm totally drawing a blank right now. I mean, it's hard for me. I've got, like, this pile on my desk of our books. <laughs> yeah. So I'm trying to think of other books, and I'm like, I can't think of anything at the moment. I mean, um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I can't even, uh, it's been a while since I've actually kind of, like, Maybe I shouldn't say this, but it's been a while since I've bought a book. <laughs> Do you use other inspiration for your designs and, and covers? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that um, inspiration for me comes from everywhere, everywhere possible, really. Like anything visual, anything, um, anything at all, like music, film, um, literature. I mean, I'm constantly being inspired by something it's it's kind of interesting too like some sometimes you don't really notice that you're you're picking up on something and it'll come out in your work I'm sure that's the the same for for any creative person is like you're being um sort of affected by everything and and you're you're kind of a sponge so at some point it's going to come back out you know um can you give me an example of that and maybe a recent cover of Princeton Architectural Press? Um, let me think. Uh, I like, I mean, I like pattern a lot. I've been using, you know, I, I think maybe that's probably one thing that I find that I always go back to is, um, you know, working with pattern and kind of finding pattern. Um, I sort of, you know, like, I think, where, where was this? It was, there was some place that I picked up this really interesting um it was like a fabric just a little swatch of it i think it was at this flea market um up near my my parents house and it ended up kind of working itself into a book that i was designing kind of like on the end sheets hmm. it's just kind of like this it, and it really did work although it didn't come from you know the author it didn't come from the subject um but it really did kind of you know i found myself kept going like i kept going back to it i kept kind of wanting to have this pattern to be part of this book and it really did work for me on that level um, which book is that uh that one i'm thinking of is called cold war hothouses it's kind of this um this book about um uh materials used during the cold war um it's a book of essays actually and um it's pretty interesting you know it goes through linoleum um and uh i don't have it in front of me but it's it goes through, like, you know, all the Tupperware and plastics and, you know, kind of all these things that um, these sort of patterns and colors come to mind for me when I think of that, that sort of era. Mm-hmm. So. That's fascinating. Um, do you have a big book design pet peeve? Is there something that when you see it on a cover or in an interior instantly yes, turns you off? I do, I do. <laughs> you know what I can't stand is... Um, and this is like an epidemic, I think. I don't know what's <laughs> happening. But, um, and, and actually, I'm fortunate enough that I think the designers I work with probably would never, ever do this because it's kind of, I think, sacrilege, <laughs> sacrilegious in design circles. But um, there's, there's, this, there's two ways to set quotation marks, okay? There's like, there's what they call typographer's quotes, and then there's... Um, or, or what some people call smart quotes, and then there's kind of like 
the not smart quotes. Mm-hmm. And, and quote, usually, um, depending on the typeface, like a quote mark um, or quotation marks that like surround the word will kind of like, um, they'll kind of tuck under. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, they have a little tail. They yeah, little exactly, curl. like a little tail. Mm-hmm. This thing is driving me crazy. Like, you know, I'll be outside, not even just for book design. I think any design, it's like atrocious when I see it. I, I can't believe it happens. But, you know, you'll be outside and you'll see like a billboard or a bus goes by and there's just these quote marks and they're, they just look like, you know, just straight lines that mm-hmm. go outside. And this is like, I don't know why people think this is okay. Because it's so not okay. I know. And that's not, um, so I guess that's kind of my uh, neurotic, um, that drives me crazy. Well, quotations, I think, that should be the next Princeton Architectural Press. I mean, their their abuse of quotations throughout the English language is pretty atrocious. Isn't it? I know. (laughs) I know. So, yeah, I'm I'm working on a um, a campaign on that. That's good to know. We'll look forward (laughs) to seeing it. Yeah, and maybe, you know, people will be a little more... Um, cautious about those types of things. It's a serious offense, you know? As they should. Yeah. Well, Deb, thanks so much for being with Moby Lives Radio. Oh, thanks, Becky. It's been a pleasure. And that's our show for the 30th of November, 2005. Thanks to Deb Wood of the Princeton Architectural Press for coming on the program. And thanks, too, to Tim Apollo for filling us in on the true nature of our president. Come back tomorrow. We're going to be talking to author James Marcus about the reaction a year later by Amazon.com and others to his book, Amazonia, about working at Amazon in the early days. We'll also be talking to Moby Liz Canadian correspondent George Murray, that book ninja guy. Meanwhile, thanks to Andrew Steinmetz, our engineer, as well as to the staff here at Melville House, Becky Kramer, Kelly Burdick, and publisher Valerie Marians. We'll see you tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget, that whale is out there, man. So
cobro 400 Luego la dejó Y pensó quién será tan feliz como yo Ir al mundo a mis pies para mí porque sí El último habitante del planeta Miró al espejo y vio su propia cara Palpó la superficie con los dedos 